2 Samuel chapter 13 is where we're at if you'll open your Bibles there. 2 Samuel chapter 13, title of the message today is The Wrong Path. The Wrong Path. Question for you as we start, what path are you on today? What is the trajectory of your life today? According to the song Stairway to Heaven, the great theologian Robert Plant tells us that there are two paths that you can go by. But in the long run, he says there's still time to change the road you're on. Close. Close. Jesus indeed said, now I know some of you are saying he is not a theologian, granted. But even a broken clock is right twice a day, okay? So Jesus said that there are in fact two paths that people are on. He says there's a narrow path that leads to life and that there is a wide path that leads to death. And so this much is true. There are two paths that you can go by. Now where the song deviates uh, and is somewhat misleading is when he says, there's still time to change the road you're on, right? Some of you, you're like, thanks, Pastor Ted. You just got that song stuck in my head. Um, It's true in the sense, there is time to change the road you're on. It's true in the sense that it's never too late to change, but... Here's the misleading part about that, and it plays into one of Satan's messages that he is very tricky and he's very crafty to do. By the way, just a little aside, you remember in the 80s, this song was very controversial because people are saying, oh, there's backward masking in that song, and it's actually worshiping Satan and so on. And whether or not that's true or not, I don't know. But this lyric right out in the open in what I think is the fifth verse of the song, I probably know too much about the song, but it actually plays right into a satanic ploy. Because the ploy of the enemy is, hey, you got time. There's no hurry. Yeah, there's two roads. But you know what? Hey, you got time to change. So go ahead, indulge yourself, party, get wasted, sleep around. You got time to change later. You can live the way you want to live. And then you know what? When you're on your deathbed, then you can just ask for forgiveness. and, and, And it's all good. Now, (laughs) There's a lot of flaws with that. One of the flaws of that, I I was a paramedic firefighter for 10 years. I'll just tell you, you you don't always get the opportunity to to know like, oh, I'm on my deathbed. I mean, I I rolled up on one guy who I pronounced dead. He still had his hand on his coffee cup at a a traffic accident. It was the craziest thing. Broken neck, you're dead. No time to cry out to God and say, okay, now I'm going to get my life right uh, with God. Now, Last week, we saw David change the road that he'd been on. He returned to a victorious path. He he repented of his sin. He had, had, you know, gotten off track where he started to take his foot off the gas, and he was tempted, and he had, uh, you know, an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. He killed her husband to to get away with it. That's, That's pretty far off the narrow path. And so David had gotten off path, gotten out of fellowship with God, and he did have time to return to the victorious path. He, he repented of his sin, he comforted his wife, they together welcomed uh, their new son Solomon uh, into the world. Solomon would be the eventual heir of David's throne, God would bless him abundantly, and once again we saw that David 
is, is having victory over his enemies. But although, and here's my point, although David received God's forgiveness and he returned to the victorious path, what we're going to see today is that David's path, when he had been away from God, when he'd been on the broad road that leads to destruction, the, the wide path, what happened was the time that he was on that path, it damaged the path of his children. And so, yes, there's forgiveness in Christ. Yes, God can redeem the years that the locusts have eaten. And yes, God can, can take you from darkness to light, from death to life. And God can do all of those things. And yes, often he does it in spite of you and me. He demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what God does. He's in the miracle business But even though that's the God that we love and serve, the years of being off track with God take their toll on not only us, but they take their toll on our families. They leave a mark. They leave a lasting mark. And what we're going to see today is that David's children, well, they've been damaged. His sons are not on the narrow path that leads to life. They're on the wide path that leads to death. And Satan knows, listen, this is his tactic. If he can get you on the wide path, then what happens is the longer that you stay there, the more ingrained your sin habits become. And the more ingrained those sin habits become, the more your sin is going to influence those around you. We're going to look at four things today. This is a message that certainly to parents, it's certainly to a wake up for us to how how we are leading our homes and our families, but it's a message to every Christian. Four things that influence David's sons onto the wide path. And the fact of the matter is, is that you are living a life of influence whether you like it or not. You're going to influence people around you by the way that you live your life. And listen, God will hold you accountable for how you live your life, for the way that you conduct yourself, and for what you do. Jesus said that it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be tossed into the sea than to lead one of his little ones astray. And so this is why it's so important for us to pay attention here as we look and see the mistakes that David has made and the the things that have led his children to now be on the wide path that leads to destruction. What are the four things that influenced them in this way and how can we avoid such a thing? The first thing, if you're taking notes and you can write it down, the first thing that led David's children astray was an environment of sin. There was an environment of sin in the home. Second Samuel chapter 13, we begin in verse 1. It says, After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, who, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick for she was a virgin and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. Now, Amnon is David's firstborn son from his wife Ahinoam of the Jezreelitess and Tamar, along with her brother Absalom, were David's children with Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Jeshur. And so this makes Tamar Amnon's half-sister. 
And Amnon is fancying himself in love with his half-sister. Everyone say, yuck. Yuck, right? Now, it says that he loved her. That word loved, if you want to circle it, nearby you could write human appetite because that's really the, the closest to the meaning of this particular word for love. It speaks of a human appetite for food, for drink, for love, for sex. In other words, it's not love in the purest sense. It is, it's love in a carnal sense and this was the love that, that Amnon had for his half-sister Tamar. Now, spoiler alert, as we go through this story, what's going to happen is that Amnon is going to rape Tamar, and uh, Tamar's brother, Absalom, is going to be so upset that he's going to kill Amnon for what he did. But again, we're asking the question, what was it that influenced Amnon to, toward this broad path of destruction and to do such a wicked thing? And of course, this first thing is the environment. The environment that he grew up in the chapter begins after this. After what? <clears throat> well, after David's walk grew cold. After this, after David stepped back from the battle, took his foot off the gas, said, you know what? It's good enough for other people to fight the battles of the Lord, but I'm going to stay home. It was after this, after the compromise had set in in David's life and he went for a walk on the roof and said, hey, there's a gal, she's hot, bring her to me. And he commits adultery with her. It was after this, it was after David said, uh-oh, you're pregnant? I'll kill your husband to get away with it. It was after this. It was after the consequences of that sin had taken place in his life to where he began to carry guilt and David carried immense shame and he lost his joy and he lost the blessing of God. After this is what it's talking about. And as we saw earlier, what was going on was that all of these things actually started years before. All of these compromises in David's life. It wasn't just after his sin with Bathsheba. There were other things as well. We saw in 2 Samuel 3 that he had six sons by six different wives. It's a recipe for disaster. And as if that wasn't bad enough, 1 Chronicles 11 tells us that he had more children by more wives. Now, all of this was contrary to God's explicit warning that he'd given to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Put it on the screen for you. Here's what it said. God, speaking to the nation of Israel, said, you're about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses for the Lord has told you you must never return to Egypt. Here it is. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord and he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. Well, David did. And this was the environment, this environment that Amnon grew up in, this environment of indulgent sin. 
And so as firstborn, you can imagine Amnon, what was it that, that happened to him? He's, he's firstborn, so that makes him the crowned prince. That means he's the guy that's the, you're the guy that's going to get the throne, dude. And so he's raised this way. He's raised with that attitude. He's raised with that mindset. And it's said that more is caught than taught. So what is it that, that Amnon is catching? Well, he's catching the idea that, you know what, as king, I can do whatever I want. I can just, whatever it is, whatever, whatever my desires are, man, I can do whatever I want. I can take any woman I want, and I can do that whether it's improper or not. This is what I can do. Dad did it. And so this is what he's catching. Now, at this point, I'm going to ask you a question that I'd ask you to take a walk with this week. You can put it on the screen for you. Write it down. What environment are you raising your children in? What environment are you raising your children in? Because what happened was David created an environment of sin. And so you have to understand, when I raise my kids, when I'm establishing my home, and if you're here and you're not married and you don't have kids, I would say, what environment are you, you know, witnessing in? What environment are you creating for those people around you by the way that you live out your faith? More is caught than taught. What are people catching by the way that you live your life? Are they catching that you can cheat in business? Are they catching that you can lie when it's convenient? Are they catching that, you know, you can go to church when it's convenient? That you can fit God into your life like a spare tire? That, you know, you can go through life and just leave God in the trunk for the most part, but then when you hit, you know, something hard, you know, and and you get a, a flat, spiritually speaking, then you can just pull God out of the trunk until things get better and you throw him back in the trunk. Is that what people are catching by the way that you live your life, by the witness that you're giving? That you can live one way in private and a different way in public? Are they catching that you, you know, home environment is one of self-denial or is they catching that your home environment is one of self-indulgence? What is it? What environment are you raising your children in? What environment are you being a, creating to those around you? And that's important because the next influencing factor, not, not only uh, is it the, the environment that you create, but the next one is, the, is an enticement to sin. That's point number two. That was, that was the, 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 the next thing that kind of created, greased the skids, if you were, bringing Amnon from the path of the narrow path that leads to life to the wide path that leads to destruction. Not only the environment that he's raised in, but the enticement to sin. Now, this is ubiquitous. In other words, this is, this is everywhere. This is, a, the, 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 this is you know, the enticement to sin. We're all enticed to sin. The Bible says that no temptation has seized you except for that which is common to man, right? And so, so we all have different enticements to sin. And, you know, Amnon's enticement is that he's attracted to Tamar. That he is sexually attracted to his sister. Now, dude, that's messed up, right? That, that is just messed up. But now listen, in Luke 17, 1, here's what Jesus told his disciples. He says, there will always be temptations to sin. Always. 
And that word temptations is interesting in Luke 17. In the Greek, it's the word scandalon. Do you know what the scandalon is? It's the trigger of a trap. You know, in my house, uh, years ago, or not too long ago, we, we used to live on, on the creek, and we had, before we sold that house, but we, we had a, a, a rat problem because of our proximity to this, to this creek. And so... I would set out traps because they're, they're just the mice and the rats were, you know, and my wife just sees one, that's enough. Like, we're moving, burn the house down. I don't want, you know. And, and so I'm setting out these, these, these traps. And, you know, the, the, the thing where you, that, that little metal thing where you put the bait, that's the scandal on, okay? And, and so you, you got it. What I learned about rats is that you just can't put anything out there. I mean, they'll eat anything, but there's just something about a, a rat trap that you got to be very specific about what they want. And I finally discovered what they want. You know what they want? Peanut butter. They want peanut butter with little crackers that are broken up and stuck in the peanut butter. And, and what I figured out was that they're, while they're chowing down on the peanut butter, they're like, oh, let me get this cracker out of here. And they hit the scandal on just enough to where they break their little neck. And you're like, yeah, bring your buddies with you next time, you know. And, and so the thing is, is that life is full of scandal ons. Life is full of traps. This is why Peter warned, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And what you, what you and I need to know is that Satan and the demonic realm are students of you. They study you because here's the deal. They know what your unique temptations are. They know what floats your boat. And so that, they're looking for the bait to stick on that scandal on that is going to entrap you. This is why Paul warned, hey, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And so the big idea in our study, here's what I want you to get, is that it's a slippery slope to the wide road of destruction. Right? And that slippery slope intensifies with the more influencing factors that you add to your life. Okay? And so, point number one is that there was an environment to sin. This is a factor that's going to lead to destruction. Point number two is that there's an enticement to sin. This is a factor that's going to lead to destruction. And some of these factors that lead to destruction, some of them are, are things that you have control over, and some of them are, are things that you don't necessarily have control over. It's kind of like heart disease. There, there's risk factors for heart disease, and some of them you can, you can prevent, and some of them you can't do anything about. You know, you can do something about diet and exercise. Those are, that's a risk factor for heart disease. You're like, okay, I can be more active. I can watch what I eat. These are things that I can manage. Now, a risk factor you can't manage is your family history. You can't change that. You might want to change that, but you can't change that. You have your genetic makeup. It's a risk factor you can't do nothing about. And so here, this enticement to sin, you can't do anything about it. You're going to be enticed to sin. 
There will always be temptations, Jesus said, so that's just the way that it goes. But the more risk factors, the more enticements to this broad road that you add in your life, it kind of the pendulum is going to swing. And so this is what you want to do is you want to take a focus of and take a takeaway from chapter 13 and go, what is it that caused David's sons to train wreck? Oh, wow, look at David. You create an environment to sin. Oh, wow, look, there was an enticement to sin. Everybody's going to be enticed to sin. Third point, third thing that we see, Amnon's got these two strikes against him. What's the third one? There's an encouragement to sin. An encouragement to sin. Verse 3, but Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab. Now, Jonadab is no friend, as we'll see. He's the son of Shimei, David's brother, so that makes Jonadab Amnon's cousin, And now Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Take note of that. How does he describe Tamar when he's saying it out loud? Oh, she's my brother Absalom's sister. Yeah, who else sister is she? She's his sister. Listen, when you can't say what it is that you want to do out loud, maybe a clue might not be the right thing to do. And this is what's going on. He's like, oh, he doesn't say, oh, I love, I love my sister, which we go, you know, yeah, yuck, you know. But he, no, I love my brother Absalom's sister. Verse 5, so Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed, And pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me food and prepare me the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Can you say childish behavior? I I got this little dog, Bentley. I've told you about him. And Bentley can be a real putz sometimes, you know. And, And... so sometimes he'll get finicky where he won't eat. And it creates problems for us, big problems, vet bills, the whole bit. So sometimes when he gets that way, the only way that he'll eat is when I give him food, he'll eat it out of my hand. And so there I am, I'm feeding Bentley, and my wife is like, you are pathetic. She's talking to me, not the dog. She's like, you're, you're pathetic feeding that little dog. Like, now I'm just doing it to, to save myself some trouble. But, you know, he's just, you know, and, and your kids can be that way too. You know, they won't eat except for out of your hand. So he's just, you know, this is ridiculous behavior. But he's like, you know, tell, tell him to, to, to do that, that you're going to eat it. You're going to eat it from her hand. And verse six, then Amnon lay down and pretended to be, now, before I go any further, I am just irritated with verse six. I just flat out say it. Because so often you have somebody that will come to you and you'll give them godly counsel. Here's my problem. I've got this problem. And you go, look, here's what the Bible says. You need to do this. And a lot of times people won't do what they should do. They just want to complain about it. But they won't actually do what they're supposed to do to fix the problem. But more often than not, you get an example like this where somebody gives them some stupid, unbiblical, sinful, you should do this. And what do they immediately, they're like, I'll do that. You know, and you just want to beat your head. You're like, come on, man. 
Why don't you be that ready to do something that's godly, something that's right? But no, it's like if there's, you know, stuck on stupid wrong thing to do, I'll do that, you know, and this is what he does. So then Amnon lay down and he pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in, in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. And so Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house. And he was lying down. She took flour and she kneaded it and she made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and she placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. And then Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. And they all went out from him. And then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon, her brother, in the bedroom. And now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and he said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, no, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Now, that's that's not true, and she probably knew that wasn't true, and she's probably just buying time. Because the law forbade, according to Leviticus 18, that a half-brother could marry his half-sister. It said he couldn't do that thing. And so when she says, please speak to the king, for he won't withhold me from you, she probably knew that wasn't true. However, verse 14, he would not heed her voice. And being stronger than she, he forced her and he lay with her. He raped her. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, arise, be gone. Just a a quick word. We're talking about rape here, but, but if you are a single lady here today, especially young single ladies, let me just tell you, Guys will promise you the moon and the stars and they'll ask you to compromise. And so often what will happen is a gal will compromise her values. She'll bend her life around somebody. She'll make compromises she shouldn't make just to, because we're in love. He's promised he loves me and this is the outcome. And what we see here is that this hatred that's stronger than this love that he had, that just indicates that he never really loved her in the first place. That, that, that this, this was, you know, just a lust that was taking place. And so he calls his servant who attended him, verse 7, and he said, here, put this woman. Now, she's not this woman. She is his relative. She's his sister. She's a princess. She's the king's daughter. But he says, put this woman out away from me. And bolt the door behind her. And now, verse 18, she had on 
a robe of many colors for the king's virgin daughters wore such apparel and his servants put her out and bolted the door behind her and then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. Why? Because this man just stole her virginity. He stole her hopes, her dreams. Listen, she will never be married. She will never have children he's ruined her life absolutely destroyed her life just completely train wreck rape incest shame absolute destroying of every dream possible and for Amnon it's going to cost him his life Tamar's brother's going to murder him now listen that all sits on Amnon's head, but can I direct your attention back to verse 5? Because my outrage lies in verse 5 with the counsel that he got from Jonadab. What if Jonadab had responded differently? Listen, what if instead of Jonadab encouraging this man to sin, what if he had gotten an encouragement to righteousness? What if he had gotten, instead of a listening ear and an advice of, hey, here's how you get what you want to get, what if he would have gotten somebody who loved him enough to tell him the truth? The Bible says it's an enemy that multiplies kisses, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. And what if? How might this story be different? How might the train wreck of, of what happened to Tamar been averted. If only he had been encouraged to righteousness and not encouraged to sin. Several years ago, I was sitting down and I was writing out just a, just an encapsulation of, of who are we as Reliance Church. We were young as a church at that time. And just prayerfully and just seeking the Lord, I, I'm like, Lord, who are we? Who, who, who do you want us to be? Who are we supposed to be as a body of believers? What is, what's the description and the definition of all that we are and all that we stand for? And the Lord led me to write down this, that Reliance Church is more than a building, more than a program, more than a man, and more than a Sunday. That we are a family of believers, that we're a group of diverse people united by a common relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know what? It's true. We are more than all of those things. The church is people. It's not buildings, it's not programs, it's not even Sunday service. This isn't church. What church is, is you and the person that's sitting next to you and the person that's sitting in front of you and behind you. That's what church is. Church is us. It's, it's, it's people. And, and what happens is that, man, people are messy. They just are. People are a mess. And so what happens is churches are messy. And, and, and so you get, what happens is you get a, a bunch of people, and this is the beautiful thing about church. Not just our church, but every healthy church. Here's the beautiful thing, is that you get a bunch of messed up people, and you fill the room up, and everybody comes in with baggage and with carry-ons, and with, we all got stuff. And we get together, we come together, and then what happens is that God does this amazing 
work. He begins to work amongst us. He begins to perfect us as his word is taught. And then there begins to be this thing that, man, God does miracles. And here's the crazy thing is that he uses, he uses flawed men and women to do it. I mean, we're all a piece of work and he brings us together and then God works in us and he works through us. And what happens is we spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And listen, this is the antithesis. This is the opposite of what happened with Jonadab. Because what happens is Amnon commits this wicked, life-wrecking, horrible sin against Tamar. And I say, (coughs) what if he would have had a godly friend? What if Instead of doing what he did, Jonadab would have said, Dude, that's your sister. That is messed up. Knock it off, you freak. What are you thinking about? Right? That's what we need in the body of Christ. We need brothers and sisters who will tell us, You've hit your head, man. Now, a lot of times we want to engineer and orchestrate and set up our Christianity in ways that, 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 that we're not confronted on our sin. People will pick churches based on, hey, just tell me that I'm great. Tell me that, you know, I can, I can live my best life now and that'll be it, you know. I don't want somebody saying, hey, look, here's what God's word says and you might want to look in the mirror. Because your zipper's down, buddy, right? And what we, we need that. And what happens is we live in a society where nobody wants to hear anything bad about themselves. They're like, oh, I'm offended. Well, maybe you ought to be offended more because your life is a train wreck, man. And we need people that'll do that, that'll love us enough to do that. And I just challenge you, do you have that in your life? Do you have people, and people go, well, you know what, I don't know, man, I, my schedule is messed up, or I, I just, I'm really busy, or what? Look, if you ain't got accountability, you're headed for, for disaster. You have to have friends that will love you enough to tell you that you're messed up, and who themselves are willing to go, you know what, hold me accountable too, because I need it. We all desperately need people in our life that are going to love us enough to tell us what we need to hear and not what we want to hear. I am so grateful for my wife, who, who, a godly woman, we've been married going on 31 years, and she, she will point out, without fear, the areas in my life that I need to hear, and you know what, and she, she's so gracious, because, you know, a lot of times things will be going on, and then, and she'll say something, and I won't listen, and then she, she, she'll say, listen, hey, you need to listen to me on this. She doesn't pull that ace out of her sleeve often, but when she does, I've learned, man, I need to, I need to listen to her on this because she's right. You need people in your life. You need accountability partners in your life. You need to be engaged and involved, and you need to be welcoming that. And man, this could have been so much different. It could have turned out so much different. Listen, we all have a gifting and a calling from God. And God has exhorted us to walk worthy of the calling that he's called us in. Here's what Paul said to the Ephesians. He said, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Now here's what this means. What this means is that God calls pastors to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. 
And then he gifts you, the saints, to actually go out and carry out that work. Listen, here's how Paul put it again to the Ephesians. He said, And he himself, God, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. What for? For the equipping of the saints, that's you, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, that's building up, of the body of Christ. And here's how this works, guys. The idea is that as we come together to seek the Lord, to worship Him, to study His Word, Well, what happens is we bear one another's burdens, we spur each other on, and then as we contribute our gifts one to another in that process, obediently serving God, as we do that, what happens is we grow up in maturity. We begin to actually mature and grow up, and ultimately, Paul says that God unites us and that he perfects us until... Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 13 through 15, we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But, Paul says, speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head. And listen, this is you. This isn't the pastors doing this. Paul has made it clear. This is you growing up speaking the truth in love to one another and saying, look, you know what? And using Jonadab as an example. Had Jonadab lived like this, then what he would have done is when he said, David, what's up? I mean, you're looking thin. Man, what's going on? And David says, I'm in love with my sister. Jonadab would have said, yuck, dude. That's sinful. You need to repent. And I love you enough to tell you you're better than that. Listen, you're the heir to the throne. You've got, God's got incredible things that he'll do through you, man, but not if you're going to do that. You need to repent, my friend. And Paul says, look, we shouldn't, we, we shouldn't us here in the, we shouldn't no longer be children. And when he uses the word children, it speaks of an infant or a little child. Here's the idea. How many of you have kids? Let me see a show of hands. All right, so speaking to the right crowd. <clears throat> now, I got three kids. You guys know that. And I have eight grandchildren, okay? Now, my grandchildren, they are five and under, eight of them, five and under, okay? And let me just say this. I'm talking about, I'll qualify what I'm about to say. As far as the bottom line goes, my grandchildren are useless. They're absolutely useless. They don't, they don't have a job. They don't add, they don't, they don't cook. They don't clean. They add nothing to the bottom line. You know what? They're like the drunk roommate you had in college. They, they just, they, they just, they keep you awake. You know, they trash the place. They throw up. You know, they break stuff. You're like, why? Why must I deal with you for crying out loud? You had, you had nothing to the equation, right? And that's true. But what happens is, listen, why do I have eight grandchildren? Because my three children grew up. They have a job. They clean. They cook. Right? They matured. And this is the way it's supposed to work. That the family grows and new children are added to the family. 
Okay, And in the church, the family grows, new children are added to the family, and we take the attitude, now when my five-year-old doesn't cook, doesn't clean, is, does what kids do, it's cute. If a 35-year-old, if my son, my 25-year-old starts acting like that, then there's a problem. It ain't cute anymore, right? And in the body of Christ, we have kids that come in, and our attitude needs to be, dude, you're a kid, you're a child, and you need to grow up. That needs to be our attitude, and we can't be those that are encouraging people to sin by saying, oh, you're acting like a child, so here's what you do. Tell them you want her to feed you like a child. No, dude, grow up. We need that in the body of Christ, guys. One of the things that I did as a father was I ran Jonadab's off. Because you have, the Bible says, be not deceived, bad company corrupts good character, and you need to be careful about the company that you keep. You need to be comfortable about, or, you know, careful about the company that your children keep. This is a big tenet of what I say in parenting classes. I, I, like, if you have to pick the top three, one of the top three is jealously guard the friends that your kids have. Because a friend will ruin your kid's life. Wrong friend. Same is true in Christianity. If you've got the wrong friend, you need to get them out of your life. If you don't have everybody who's in your circle of influence encouraging you, spurring you on towards love and good deeds, then you've got the wrong friend. And listen, every single one of these influencing factors weighs us towards the broad road, the wide road that leads to destruction. And so we need to limit those as much as we possibly can. That brings us to a fourth and final thing. And the fourth thing that sort of steered, that weighed, that influenced David's kids down the wide road of destruction, it was an empowerment to sin. An empowerment to sin. Look at verse 20 through 21, or through 22. It says, And Absalom, Tamar's brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now, the Bible says some men's sins are obvious. They go before them. You could see them coming a mile away. Some men's sins aren't as obvious. They trail behind. Over time, you realize, oh, yeah, rotten apple. And so what happens here is that Amnon is one of those guys that his sinful behavior is just telegraphed. Tamar comes in right away, automatically, Absalom knows, Amnon did something to you, didn't he? And that's what he says, has Absalom, or has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. And so Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Now, this is not him saying, it's no big deal, get over it. No, we're going to see that he's, he's going to kill this guy. He's basically saying, look, he's your brother, be cool, I'll take care of it, you know. And, and so he brings her into his house. Verse 21, but when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Verse 22 says, and Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And we're going to see next week that he's going to murder him. But I would draw your attention to verse 21 in closing. It says that David was very angry. Now what you're going to find out as we continue in this chapter is you're going to see that that's the extent of it. 
David is the classic threatening and repeating parent. Stop it, or I'll say stop it again. You know, he's angry, but he doesn't do a thing about it. Two years go by, David does nothing. Now, all right, he's, he's in a difficult spot, right? It's complicated, because the law said if a man raped an unmarried virgin, that he had to pay the father a fine, and he had to marry her, But then the law also forbade marriage between half-brothers and half-sisters. So he's kind of in no man's land here like, well, what do I do with that? Well, not nothing, David, and he does nothing. And clearly, this isn't the first time that David was indulgent with his son. Listen, a quick application, and then we close it up. And the application is, are you that way with your kids? Are you indulgent? Is some people, you know, in, in raising their kids, their daughter, their son gets the throne. They run the house. It's like we set our watch by King Farouk here. And, and everything that King Farouk wants, King Farouk gets. And you indulge your child to the point to where you love them straight to hell. Because what you've done is you've empowered them to sin. Because they can do no wrong. Listen, it's something to take a walk with, but what we need to understand is that we, in the choices that we make as Christians, little by little, day by day, we are either inspiring and and influencing our children and the people within our circle of influence towards the narrow road that leads to life, or we're influencing them towards the wide road that leads to destruction. It's interesting as you consider this. You know, names are very significant in the Old Testament. Tamar, what does her name mean? It means palm tree. And here's the significance. It signifies fruitfulness. Absalom, his name means his father's peace. And Amnon, his name means faithful and stable. And listen, because David influenced his kids towards the broad road that leads to destruction versus the narrow road that leads to life, none of his kids lived up to their name. There's no fruit, there's no peace, and there's no stability. Jesus said, it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck be thrown in the depths of the sea than to lead one of his little ones astray. How are you doing?